Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. The events of the past week or so should obliterate any doubt that the war against the Palestinians of Gaza is a joint U.S.-Israeli operation. Last Friday, as the Biden administration stood alone among all of the nations of the world in vetoing a U.N. Security Council resolution that called for an immediate ceasefire, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was busy circumventing U.S. congressional review to ram through the approval of what he said was an emergency sale of more than 13,000 tank rounds to Israel. Now, it's not a shock that the United States is sending weapons to Israel, but remember that over the past month or more, Antony Blinken has been zipping across the Middle East. He's been appearing on scores of television networks in a sort of PR tour that is aimed at selling the world this notion that the Biden administration is deeply concerned about the fate of Gaza's 2.2 million residents. And he said, just as the ceasefire was ending earlier this month and Israel resumed its scorched earth campaign, Blinken said that the U.S. had uh, gotten assurances from Israel that they're going to try a little bit harder not to kill so many civilians. So at the, at the same time that you have uh, Blinken saying these things and you have the United States vetoing the calls supported by a vast majority of nations in the world for a, an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And by the way, this was an extraordinary move on the part of the UN Secretary General who uh, invoked uh, a seldom used rule at the UN to try to uh, demand that this ceasefire be imposed on, on Israel. And it was the United States standing alone that vetoes it. You have Blinken, though, at the same time saying, oh, but actually, we've been telling Israel to tone it down a bit in the in the mass killing. And you have Blinken saying, oh, we care so much about uh, Palestinian lives. And then they're ramming through an emergency transfer of tank rounds to Israel. So these events, just of the past week or so alone, should decisively flush all of those platitudes that Blinken and other U.S. officials have been offering about concern for Palestinian lives, it, it should just flushed into a swirling pool of blood. And, you know, what we have seen is that the Biden administration is sort of trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, you have Biden all in supporting his, as he calls him, his great, great friend, 
Benjamin Netanyahu and this scorched earth campaign. On the other hand, they're saying, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to moderate Israel a bit. And, and the propaganda, you know, from Joe Biden and from his administration has gotten so extreme at times that even the Israeli military has told them, you know, maybe you should be a little more careful in some of the things that you're saying. And just to remind people, Biden falsely claimed that he had seen images of, quote, terrorists beheading children. Uh, he didn't see those images. And then Biden knowingly relayed that unverified allegation as a fact, even though Kamala Harris and other advisors had told him this isn't verified. Uh, Biden publicly questioned the death toll of Palestinian civilians. None of this is is an accident, and I don't I don't think you can attribute it to the fact that Joe Biden exaggerates all the time or he stumbles into gaffes. I mean, everything we know about Joe Biden's fifty year history of supporting and facilitating Israel's worst crimes, I, I think it leads to only one conclusion, and that is that Biden wants Israel's destruction of Gaza, including it comes along with seven thousand dead children so far. Biden can't say that he doesn't understand that. Biden can't say that he can't do anything about it. He must want it to happen. I don't see how you can draw any other conclusion. You know, the, the horrifying nature of the October 7th attacks that were led by Hamas in Israel, they in no way morally or legally justify what Israel is doing to the civilian population of Gaza. More than 18,000 people have died in 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 a, a roughly 60 day period nothing nothing in this world justifies the industrial scale level of killing children so you know it's the truth what the israeli state with full political and military backing of the united states government what the israeli state is engaged in has far surpassed any basic principles of proportionality or legality and israel's own crimes dwarf those of Hamas. They dwarf those of Hamas. And yet Biden and other U.S. officials continue to defend the indefensible, rolling out this tired, well-worn, twisted notion that this is all Israel's right to self-defense. Think about that. Think of what this would mean if we applied that rationale, the rationale promoted by both the U.S. and Israel, constantly hammered down our throats that this is self-defense. Imagine if you apply that standard that the U.S. and Israel should say should be the standard, apply that to 75 years of history leading up to October 7th. How many times throughout that period would the Palestinians have been quote unquote justified in massacring thousands of Israeli children, systematically attacking Israeli hospitals and schools? How many times would the Palestinians have been acting in quote self-defense as they raised whole neighborhoods to rubble as they transformed Israeli civilians' apartment buildings into concrete tombs that they are buried under or that they are buried under alive and then they become their tomb. That justification, self-defense, only works for Israel because the Palestinians can enact no such destruction upon Israel and its people. The Palestinians have no army, no navy, no air force, no powerful nation states that are providing them with the most modern and lethal military hardware. Unlike Israel, Palestine doesn't have hundreds of nuclear weapons. No, Israel can burn Gaza to the ground, burn its people to the ground because the U.S. facilitates it politically and militarily.
National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby recently got really angry when he was asked, this happened on December 6th, he's asked about Israel's widespread killing of civilians. And here's what he said. It is not the Israeli Defense Forces strategy to kill innocent people. It's happening, I admit that. Each one's a tragedy, but it's not like the Israelis are sitting around every morning and saying, hey, how many more civilians can we kill today? Let's go bomb a, let's go bomb a school or a hospital or a residential building and just and cause civilian casualties. They're not doing that. They're trying to go after Hamas, and it's a very difficult task. When Hamas, oh, by the way, in addition to deliberately slaughtering people, is deliberately hiding themselves in residential buildings, in hospitals, in tunnels, uh, making it, putting the innocent people of Gaza directly in the crossfire. Now you tell me, is that right? Now there are a lot of problems with John Kirby's rant. He's the National Security Council spokesperson. But one big problem with what John Kirby is saying there is that attacks against civilians, schools and hospitals, that is exactly what Israel is doing and it's doing it repeatedly. It's irrelevant what John Kirby believes the IDF's intent to be. For two months, Numerous Israeli officials and lawmakers have said that their intent is to collectively strangle the Palestinians of Gaza into submission, death, or flight. John Kirby's claims are also just decimated by the revelations in the recent investigative report by the Israeli media outlets 972 and Local Call, and we're going to be talking more about this in a moment. But that story, which was based on interviews with several Israeli military and intelligence sources, described how Israel knows precisely the number of civilians present in buildings that it strikes, and at times it has knowingly killed hundreds of Palestinian civilians in order to kill one single alleged top Hamas commander. As Israel ratchets up its killing machine again, as it keeps this scorched earth machine going, it gives lie to all of Antony Blinken's pronouncements and Biden's pronouncements about caring about Palestinian lives. No lie has been too obscene to justify this wholesale slaughter of people that the Israeli defense minister called human animals. According to this campaign, there's no such thing as a Palestinian child. There's no Palestinian hospitals. There's no Palestinian schools. The UN is Hamas. Journalists are Hamas. The prime ministers of Belgium, Spain, Ireland, they're Hamas. Everything and everyone who dissents in the slightest from the genocidal narrative is Hamas. The government spokesperson for Israel, Mark Regev, he recently defended the practice of stripping Palestinian prisoners down to their underwear by saying the following. First of all, remember, it's the Middle East and it's warmer here. And, and uh, especially during the day when it's sunny, it's, it's uh, to be asked to take off your shirt. It might not be pleasant, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, and as your report said, we are looking for people who would have concealed weapons, especially Suicide bombers with explosive vests, we have to make sure they're not wearing those. You know, this is a clear violation of the Geneva Convention. First of all, they take videos uh, uh, humiliating uh, these men who've been captured, and then they distribute them around the world on social media. But also, it's important to point out that despite Israel's claims that there's these mass surrenders happening of Hamas fighters laying down their weapons, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that of the hundreds of Palestinians that have been detained and photographed in the Gaza Strip, an estimated 10 to 15 percent of them are actually affiliated with Hamas in any way. And by the way, Israel hasn't even produced any evidence that that 10 to 15 percent 
are affiliated with Hamas, or more specifically, that they are armed Hamas guerrillas engaged in terrorism. So what we have here is clear evidence that Israel was both violating the Geneva Conventions and engaging in an immoral theatrical production in which Palestinian civilians were forced at gunpoint to play Hamas fighters in an Israeli propaganda movie. You know, these two months plus of scorched earth bombing, of invasion of Gaza, should cause everyone in the world to pause and, and ask themselves, what are you going to do about this? All of us have a moral obligation to stand up and say, enough. Our governments need to be held accountable. We're going to be talking today with a journalist who spent extensive time living in occupied Palestine, who has a new book out that describes the technology, the military hardware that Israel has been testing for many, many years on Palestinians in both the occupied West Bank and Gaza. I'm referring to my friend, the independent journalist, Anthony Lowenstein. He is an independent journalist and author, and his latest book is called The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. It's published in the U.S. by Verso. He's also the co-founder of the investigative news site, Declassified Australia. Anthony Lowenstein, thank you so much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to talk a lot about the work that you did in your book, about the time that you've spent on the ground in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, the reporting that you've done about how Israel has effectively used what it calls the battlefield uh, in Palestine as a testing ground for new military tactics, new military technology. But, but first, I want to get your analysis of how those dynamics have played out in Israel's military campaign against Gaza? The Israeli response to Hamas's brutal attack on October 7 has been, on the one hand, very much part of a long historical arc. The brutality of it, I mean, the brutality of the Hamas attack is worth noting and acknowledging, but the Israeli response, which was always going to be utterly devastating, with 110% Western support. I mean, the only Western countries that have expressed some degree of criticism has been Ireland at times and the Spanish government in the last month or so. But in general, the entire Western world has been 110% support apart from occasional comments. But as I often say to people, don't look at what people say, look at what they do. And much of the West has given huge amounts of weaponry, the US particularly, but also Germany and other nations too, and to Israel rushed weapons, in fact, to Israel since October 7. But the Israeli response has been of a scale and brutality which really is unprecedented since Israel's birth. There's obviously been countless wars between Israel and Palestinians and Israel and its Arab neighbours, but the scale and the speed with which Israel has slaughtered Palestinians, the vast majority of whom are civilians, has, I don't want to say it hasn't shocked me, I mean, the facts of it are shocking. The, the, everyone has seen the videos and the photos, and I have friends in Gaza who are, I mean, suffering would be an understatement. They are deeply traumatised. Their homes have been destroyed. They're essentially refugees in their own territory. So they are profoundly 
trying to survive on a daily basis. But the Israeli military response, the indiscriminate nature of it, with complete Western support, has been of a scale. I mean, there was a report in the Financial Times this last week which essentially said, based on their own analysis, that the rate of destruction and the speed with which it's happened is akin to the US bombing Germany at the end of World War II, far more than any other conflict since World War II. Now, of course, there's been huge amounts of other wars in the last 80 or so years, many of which have killed far more people, to be sure. But the scale and the speed of it is unprecedented, essentially, this century and basically for the last 80 years. So that amount of damage using the most sophisticated Israeli weapons, which of course are designed to be indiscriminate. But uh, yeah, I've been kind of staggered and stunned and appalled and disgusted because it's being done in my name as someone who's Jewish myself. You know, there was a, a story that was published by uh, two Israeli media outlets um, a, that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago at the end of uh, November, and the lead investigative reporter was from 972 Magazine, again, Israeli investigative journalist publishing in Israel. And the, the title of the article was A Mass Assassination Factory Inside Israel's Calculated Bombing of Gaza. And in the story, it describes how the Israeli military, and by the way, we should note that it is a story that's based on seven Israeli military and intelligence sources, some former, some current, who have participated in attacks uh, against Gaza. And at the heart of this investigation were a number of very, very relevant details, one of which is that the Israeli military is using a system called Habsura, or the gospel. And according to the article, it is largely built on artificial intelligence and can, quote, generate targets almost automatically at a rate that far exceeds what was previously possible. This AI system, as described by a former military intelligence officer, essentially facilitates a, quote, mass assassination factory. And the sources told uh, 972 that the increasing use of AI-based systems like Habsura allows the Israeli army to carry out strikes on residential homes where a single Hamas member lives on a massive scale, even those who are junior Hamas operatives. And it also talks about one specific case where the Israeli military command knowingly approved the killing of hundreds of Palestinian civilians in an attempt to assassinate what they described as a single top Hamas military commander. And there's a quote that I think everyone should hear uh, from one of the sources, the Israeli sources says, nothing happens by accident. When a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza, it's because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed, that it was a price worth paying in order to hit another target. We are not Hamas. These are not random rockets. Everything is intentional. We know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every home. You know, when I read this article, I thought of your work, Anthony, and I'm wondering if you can pick up from there and talk about the broader context of how Israel is using artificial intelligence, but also what this says about the nature of the Israeli attacks against Gaza right now. You know, one of the amazing things about that report, and it's certainly a very reputable outlet, I've written for that outlet myself over the last five or so years, is that it really deepens their understanding of some of the reporting I've done myself and others have done in the last decade or so. And what the piece talks about really is how pretty much since 2014, 
extended into 2021 when Israel has fought these seemingly never-ending wars between itself and Hamas, that there is a growing, as you say, use of AI targeting. And of course, the way that Israel gets those targets, those so-called targets, which I think is worth noting, is for a range of ways, obviously drones, very surveillance technology. One other thing it's also worth saying is that so much of the Israeli intelligence is not just coming from Israel, it's coming also from the US. And I'm a co-editor and co-founder of an organisation called Declassified Australia, which does investigative work around Australia's relationships with the world, including the US. And we had a report about a month ago, which kind of went viral, which essentially said that, which is directly related to what this 972 report says, which is that There's a key U.S. intelligence base in the centre of Australia called Pine Gap. It's been around for about half a century. And it was a key intelligence gathering base for the U.S. war on terror. A lot of the so-called targeting the U.S. used in Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria was coming from Pine Gap. That was partly released through Edward Snowden documents and other releases. And we discovered through a reliable source that since October 7, the Americans are giving Israel real-time intelligence to be used in their war in Gaza. Now, how Israel is using that is not entirely clear, but it's part of what Israel is gathering, apart from on-the-ground sources. And, of course, over the years, because Israel's been blockading Gaza for nearly 20 years, they have a lot of the human intelligence, both Hamas operatives. We don't know how many, but no doubt a number of Hamas operatives are working for the Israelis and a number of Palestinian civilians in Gaza who over the years have been often blackmailed to provide intelligence. So all that information is put into this system and is, as the report says, providing huge amounts of data points and alleged targets. And it's also worth saying that so much of the reporting in the last years, and particularly since October 7, around AI-enabled warfare, either done by the Israelis or the Americans and others, goes under the guise of suggesting that it reduces civilian casualties. In fact, there's literally no evidence for that argument. In fact, the evidence is for the opposite, that in fact AI-enabled warfare is deliberately causing more civilian casualties, which is exactly the point. And in some other reporting around that 972 story, it became very clear that one of Israel's aims, which is has no basis in history whatsoever, is that the aim is to make the Palestinian civilian population in Gaza so distraught, so angry, so devastated, that they will turn against their Hamas rulers. And there is literally no precedent in history for a people who are being bombarded and killed and starved and essentially obliterated who somehow think, oh, okay, I'm going to now rise up against, say, Hamas or some other leader. It just doesn't happen. It's deluded thinking, and it's only able to happen because of complete American impunity, that essentially Israel is able to do this, to kill massive numbers of civilians on an unprecedented scale, the speed of which we haven't seen in really this century or beyond. And Israel will claim that it's using AI-enabled warfare, and I don't doubt the veracity of that story, but it's important to note finally this, this idea. They're doing it both for domestic audiences in Israel and an international audience in an attempt to try to rally support for Israel, but also importantly, to try to get international clients for their technology. What I mean by that is, I've been reporting in the last few months, and I've been doing this obviously longer than that, but particularly since October 7 that a lot of what Israel is doing in Gaza is not a secret. What I mean by that is they're promoting it on social media, they're putting it on 
Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms, sort of so-called real live footage or the bombing of um, homes of alleged Hamas militants, so Israel claims. That is not just done for a domestic or international public. It's done as it has in the past in Gaza where weapons are being tested in real time for global audiences, for global markets. So in months and years to come, there was an interesting quote in a follow-up story in The Guardian around that 972 story that essentially said from a US official, other countries are watching what Israel is doing. And that is a clear message to me, as I've seen before for years, that they are doing this not solely for foreign markets, of course, but partly for that purpose, that ultimately the technology that Israel is using in Gaza, mass killing on an unprecedented scale, many other nations want a piece of that in their own wars, in their own counterinsurgencies, and that's what disturbs me. You know, Anthony, we we also saw uh, a, a sort of parallel version of this playing out with the war in Ukraine, where you have uh, all of the premier weapons manufacturers in the world, certainly all of them in the United States, um, but also new startups that are manufacturing uh, sort of smaller kamikaze-style drones uh, that are single-use drones that can be, you know, and, and Ukraine has been just awash in drone warfare, not just huge tier one or tier two level nation-state drones, but also smaller drones made by smaller players um, that can be swarmed where you use them in batches of uh, a dozen or more drones attacking a target um, and each with a single explosive on them. Um, and these defense companies have really salivated at the opportunity to test their new gear um, on the battlefield against Russia uh, in Ukraine. And, it, and, and your work has sort of described how Israel has been doing that because they they have a quote unquote battlefield uh, right next door, and they can always create a reason to test the newest toys, which is a very long tradition of the war industry. But can you walk us through some of the other technologies or weapons platforms or intelligence platforms that you've documented Israel to be testing on Palestinians, perhaps with the intent of growing the export market or showing other nations what's possible? It's worth saying that just in relation to Russia-Ukraine, because it does very much relate to Israel, is that very soon after Russia invaded in February last year, there were huge amounts of European nations that were literally begging and coming to Israel, wanting missile defense shields and various other defense equipment, and Israel was selling them on huge scale. I mean, last year, we don't have the figures for 2023 yet, but for 2022, Israel had the highest, highest number of arms sales in its history, 12.5 billion US. And some of that was going to, because of the Russia-Ukraine war, I think we'll find out more about the 2023 figures next year. But Israel battle tests huge amounts of weapons. And I guess the context in a way for my book is that I was pretty frustrated in the last year seeing so much of the coverage in the Western press around Pegasus. Some listeners will know Pegasus is a spyware that essentially can be put on your smartphone and anything, anything can be listened to, documented, taken down. Um, even if the phone is off, your microphone or camera can be controlled and listened to. And it's been bought by dozens and dozens of nations around the world, democracies and dictatorships. But I was so frustrated with so much of the media. And there was some good coverage about this for sure, some good journalism. But there was also this weird blindness that it framed the company behind that NSO group as a rogue company 
that somehow there's this rogue Israeli company selling this incredibly powerful technology to countries around the world that are then using it to spy on their own populations from India to Bangladesh and beyond, just fundamentally misunderstanding the point. Yes, the company NSO is a private company, but essentially it's an arm of the Israeli state, just like Lockheed Martin and Wraith on others are arms of the American state, as you've documented, Jeremy, yourself over the years. So Yes, Iraq and Afghanistan post 9-11 were great testing grounds for US weapons. The Ukraine war is currently being used, as you say, by huge amounts of nations to test new weapons, including drones and other surveillance tech for that matter. You know, Israel has used Palestine as a testing ground for years, both the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. So what does that include? That includes huge amounts of drones both armed and unarmed, surveillance equipment, biometric tools in the West Bank when Palestinians have to go through checkpoints to go from point A to point B, their facial recognition technology, there's biometric tools. All this is regularly tested in Palestine on Palestinians. Of course, the Palestinians don't consent. They often don't know exactly what's happening. It's documented by human rights activists or organisations like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty or journalists. And so often I've seen in country after country after country around the world how this technology is then sold and appears in that own context, in other places where it's been promoted by Israel as battle-tested in Palestine, in inverted commas, it works in Palestine, and therefore it is sold and promoted as being very effective in other places. So just a few quick examples. So the European Union in the last years after 2015, when there was a large number of refugees coming from Africa and particularly the Middle East and Syria, were determined to never allow that to happen again, that if you're Ukrainian and white, I'll let you in, uh, if you're Christian essentially, and not that I had a problem with Europe welcoming Ukrainians, they deserve all the protection they can get. But if you're brown or black, clearly it's a fundamentally different situation. So Europe has created this fortress-type Europe. And one aspect of that are Israeli drones that are flying 24-7 over the Mediterranean. They're unarmed, but they're essentially the eye in the sky for the EU. And they have been battle-tested in over Gaza in the last decade or so. And they're used essentially to show the Europeans uh, called Frontex, which is the border security arm of the EU, which is based in Warsaw in Poland, who should be rescued and who should not be. And the EU has made a decision unofficially, but it's the reality of letting people drown. So Israel is a key part of that infrastructure. And the only reason the EU bought those drones is because they've been battle-tested in Gaza. And just finally, one other example, there's been huge amounts of, along the US-Mexico border, there is a huge infrastructure of Israeli surveillance equipment, massive surveillance towers made by Elbert, which is Israel's biggest defense company. And the only reason that was contracted by originally Obama, continued by Trump and completed by Biden, so this is really bipartisan, is that these kinds of technologies have been battle tested in Palestine, in the West Bank and Gaza. So one thing I guess I was trying to show in the book and understanding how what's happening in Palestine never stays there. It's almost like global Palestine, the Palestinianization almost of the world. And you also just to stay on the issue of Israeli drones for for a moment. Um, it's a it's a war that has has not gotten nearly the attention it deserves. But you have the Azerbaijan war against Armenians and against Armenia, and of course um, Israel 
helped fuel Azerbaijan's campaign in the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and supplied it with uh. powerful weapons to Azerbaijan. And there's been media reporting um, sort of ba basically saying that because Azerbaijan's air force was not you know, as modern or as devastating as some other nation states that the Israeli drones uh, were, were a definitive factor in the Azerbaijani attacks against Armenia. Definitely, that was the key point. And one of the reasons why Israel has been so keen to befriend that nation is because they're desperate to spy on Iran. And that country is a neighbor of Iran, and therefore Israel has a massive presence in that country. And I think in some ways, you know, there's been so much coverage in the last, I mean, since October 7, of course, but for years on the situation in Palestine, which is obviously bad enough. I mean, the occupation of Palestine, having reported on this for 20 years was living in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020 and have been reporting on the conflict for nearly 20 years, having seen up close the actual reality of the situation in Palestine is bad enough for Palestinians and getting worse every day, even before October 7. But what I guess disturbed me even more, which is probably why I wrote the book, was that I was seeing how these issues were bleeding into other conflicts. And one of the issues that, for example, when you have a close relationship between Israel and India, which is one of the key relationships that receives far too much attention now, when India is now the world's biggest nation, world's biggest so-called democracy, world's biggest population, and a key ally of India, particularly since Modi became prime minister in 2014, has been Israel. Now, India is doing what it's doing for its own reasons, not doing it because of Israel. But to me, it's really revealing that a nation like India is importing huge amounts of Israeli defense equipment, spyware and other kind of tools, and they're inspiring each other. You have key Indian officials talking openly about being inspired by the occupation of Palestine that Israel is perpetuating, wanting to do something similar in Kashmir, the northern part of India, which is a Muslim-majority area, to bring Hindus essentially to settle the land, so-called colonize the land, which is what India is doing at the moment. And that kind of relationship between Israel and India reminds me, I talk about this in the book, of Israel and South Africa, nations that were both, well, all those nations were ethno-nationalist states, but they were, well, East South Africa, of course, in the end became a pariah state. But for decades, it was not a pariah state at all. It was on parts of the left, but it was welcomed by the international community. I guess I give all these examples to show that the Palestine Laboratory and what's happening in Palestine, including what's happening right now, Jeremy, in Gaza, being tested, whether I've seen in the last two months huge amounts of new tech being developed, new weapons that I speak to people in Gaza that is being new weapons doctors have never seen those injuries before, new kinds of drones, new kinds of surveillance. All this, as I said, all this is not being done solely to sell it to global players, not at all. But a key part of Israel's almost DNA now, is to promote and test these weapons in real time, which are then sold as these. what's happening in Gaza right now will be sold in months and years ahead to other nations that are desperate for it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You know, there's there's also been uh, video that Palestinians have taken showing uh, Israeli unarmed Israeli drones that hover down to people's homes, including in fairly remote locations, and then have play an audio message. I don't know if it's live or it's a recording, uh, but it's it's uh, one of the videos that I saw is basically threatening uh, the residents of of this home uh, that if you leave, we're going to be watching you. Um, and it's I mean, it really is uh, Orwell level stuff. Um, and you also have. Uh, and I, I've always found this creepy because this this isn't new, and the Israelis have been doing this for a long time. But this the, the phone calls that people get, Palestinian journalists have gotten phone calls uh, telling them that they're being watched. We've seen uh, the families of multiple journalists killed in what appear to be targeted strikes. You have uh, Palestinians getting SMS messages, uh, one of them uh, that was recently reported on uh, that was sent just 10 minutes before an IDF attack said, quote, the IDF will begin a crushing military attack on your area of residence with the aim of eliminating the terrorist organization Hamas. And what uh, Antony, Palestinians in Gaza have been told to do, and this goes back to December 1st, by the Israeli military, the, the IDF set up a has an Arabic language webpage, and they have an Arabic language spokesperson, and that runs Twitter accounts. But uh, starting on December first, after the United States supposedly secured an agreement from Israel that it was going to maybe possibly try to not kill so many civilians, Israel rolls out this totally dystopian app that they want um, Palestinians in Gaza to download, and it's basically an interactive map of Gaza dividing the strip into hundreds of numbered zones. And on the uh, IDF website, there's a QR code. And so the, Israel, and, and, and this clearly is aimed much more at sort of the Biden administration's lip service that it's paid to Palestinian civilians uh, needing to be protected than it is toward the actual population. But let's take it for what it's worth. They're telling people who... Uh, don't have access to clean drinking water, who are basically starving, who are on the uh, undoubtedly on the verge of horrible health pandemics, um, who are constantly having to scramble to find somewhere, anywhere possibly safe. They're telling them to go online, scan this QR code, and then constantly be monitoring IDF social media channels to figure out which block they can go to so that they don't get killed. It's like a grotesque uh, reality show where if you make the wrong decision, you and your family can be maimed or killed. But all of this is is rooted in tactics and technology that you've written about. It just is happening on a on a grander sort of industrial scale right now. It is, and it's also worth saying that that ridiculous dystopian plan is also directed at Palestinians, many of whom literally don't have access to mobile phones or internet. I mean, 
just that very basic fact. I mean, I the friends I have in Gaza, who I'm trying to be in touch with as much as possible, despite the major communication problems because there's a war going on, have said to me they're in areas according to that map that you just mentioned, Jeremy, that apparently are safe, and they're sending me photos and videos. It's being attacked. It's being bombed. Everyone in Palestine knows. Everyone really, I think. I mean, the U.S. administration knows this. There are no safe places, and now you have a situation where huge amounts of Palestinians are being pushed into a smaller and smaller territory near the rougher border the, on the Egyptian side. And, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is how increasingly I am reminded of what happened at the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War in 2009. For listeners who don't remember that, there was a brutal civil war in Sri Lanka for decades between the Sinhalese majority government and the Tamil Tigers and the Tamils were fighting for an independent homeland. And in 2009, this war came to a horrible conclusion where Israel, amongst others, was supporting the Sri Lankan government. And the, the government essentially was pushing more and more and more Tamils into a smaller and smaller and smaller part of northern Sri Lanka. And the end result was probably around 40,000 Tamils were killed. The civilians, the vast majority were civilians. And yes, the Tamil Tigers were destroyed. Its leader was killed. And I have that comparison in my mind a lot at the moment because, as I say in so many examples, the end of that war in 2009 brought no accountability. There was no war crimes investigations. There was none of that whatsoever for the Sri Lankan generals and others who were involved in that. Fast forward to 2023, what Palestinians can do in Gaza who are essentially trapped into a smaller and smaller part of the strip there where they are moving closer and closer to Rafah, which is essentially, if that border opens there, it would be into Egypt and the Sinai, that there is only so many options here where this conflict can go, right? I mean, Egypt either opens its borders, in other words, it's being bribed enough by the Americans or Israelis to do so, and it hasn't got nearly enough reporting in the Western press, but I read lots of reporting um, in Israeli press and elsewhere that Israel has been essentially trying for two months to bribe the Egyptian regime over and over and over again to take in huge amounts of people. There was a report a few days ago in one of Israel's biggest newspapers, Israel Hayom, which is close to Netanyahu, which is a plan being drafted apparently with some support in the US Congress of bribing neighboring Arab states, including places like Iraq, who is hardly in a position to take really anybody to essentially take billions of dollars in from the US and take in Palestinian refugees who are in need at the moment. And... <laughs> I mean, it's almost hard to know what to say about that kind of plan. I mean, my book ends with this idea that I was fearful, and I wasn't the only one saying this, of course, but fearful that this conflict would take a dark turn if there was some unimaginable event, a war, an attack. Of course, I didn't know what that was going to be. And October 7 happens, and so many of the aims and dark ambitions and dreams of many in the Israeli political elite, and let's be clear, many in the Israeli public as well. I think people often like to say that this is being led in Israel by a handful of crazy far-right lunatics close to Netanyahu. It's simply not true. I mean, you know, I have a quote in the book of a study from 2016, which is you know, a long time ago now, that said that nearly half of Israeli Jews supported ethnic cleansing 
In other words, forcibly removing Palestinians. Now, can you imagine what that figure would be today? I mention all this because this ties into the broader, I guess you'd say, agenda of where Israel appears to be going, of a state that is so extreme, so belligerent, so off the leash, while at the same time developing the most sophisticated weapons in the world. I mean, the US remains the world's biggest arms dealer, as you'd know, Jeremy. 45% of the world's weapons still comes from the US, and Israel's 10th. Now, Israel's not going to be number one anytime soon, but it's 10th. In terms of spyware, though, it's actually nearly number one, if not number one. It's a global leader in this. And when you have, a, as you say, a willing, well, not a willing, an unwilling population on Israel's doorstep for over half a century, and no guardrails on what Israel is doing, including after October 7, you are almost incentivizing Israel to develop even more dystopian ways of surveilling and killing people. And that's essentially what's happening now in real time. Yeah. And, you and you know, um, uh, you, I think you're making several crucial points there. I mean, one also is if, you, if you're looking at Israeli TikTok or other social media, I mean, it, it's just, it's flooded with the most vile, racist, mocking of the suffering of Palestinians. And there's a real uh, bloodlust that you can sense. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that for years, there's always been uh, this attempt to sort of say, well, this is, this is sort of the extremists. This is the, the far right agenda. Um, but we are seeing uh, that agenda being embraced by people across the political spectrum in Israel. And you're hearing openly genocidal comments being made, not just from random posters on, on social media, uh, but from government ministers, from uh, members of the Knesset. Um, and I think it's worth uh, fleshing out a bit what you just mentioned, because it's very important, this notion that uh, one of the plans on the table seems to be essentially uh, killing as many people as you can in Gaza, uh, forcing as many of them uh, into Rafah with the hope that eventually you can just stick them in the Sinai Desert, and um, and and you know we also should say many Israeli media outlets have broken very very important stories throughout the duration of this uh, conflict, and it's really worth it for people who care about these issues to monitor what's being said in Israeli media. Uh, but my colleague Ryan Grimm at the Intercept uh, some weeks ago flagged a story from Israel Hayum, which is considered to be something like an official organ for Netanyahu. This is an Israeli media outlet. Um, and, and what Ryan said is that Netanyahu tasked his top advisor, Ron Dermer, who's the Minister of Strategic Affairs, with designing plans to, quote, thin, thin the Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip to a minimum. And he's citing Israel Hayum, and the paper reported that the plan has two main elements. Uh, the first is to use the pressure of the war and the humanitarian crisis to persuade Egypt to allow refugees to flow to other Arab countries. And then the second is to open up sea routes so that Israel would, quote, allow a mass escape to European and African countries. Um, and just to make clear to people, Ron Dermer, who's originally from Miami, Florida, is a Netanyahu confidant, and he previously was Israel's ambassador to the United States, and he has close relationships with many members of Congress. So it it does seem uh, that that these plans are being actively discussed. There's also been talk among Egyptian journalists of 
you know, attempts to sort of bribe uh, Sisi, the dictator of Egypt, um, into allowing an essential resettlement of large parts of Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula. Definitely. And you know, I think the context for this is so important. I have a lot of quotes of this in the book, but listeners can find this very easily on Google. There's amazing amounts of Israeli politicians for years, not just since October 7, openly saying, and I'm paraphrasing various quotes, we need to finish the job we started in 1948. So Israel is kind of a schizophrenic society in a way. On the one hand, there is still profound denial about what happened in 1948, mass ethnic cleansing, the forcible removal of 750,000 Palestinians. There's still profound denial about that, obfuscation, ignorance. On the other hand, there's many politicians who say, oh, no, no, we did ethnic cleansing. We didn't finish the job. We need to keep doing it whenever we can. We're looking for our right moment. And this is what October 7 potentially has offered many in the Israeli political and, frankly, media and, frankly, public establishment. Now, how this plays out, as you say, I saw that report too, I mentioned it before, in Israel Hayom about an idea of thinning out so-called the population. Whether that happens, it to me is incredibly unclear. I mean, you don't, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But ultimately, this is sort of, I think, a longer-term plan that there's, I think there was a realisation a number of years ago by a lot of, I would say, savvier Israeli politicians that it was very unlikely that you're going to be able to get rid of all the Palestinians in one go. It just wasn't going to happen through a war, through some kind of mass ethnic cleansing, but you can do it in piecemeal, step by step by step. And you make life, as Israel is doing, utterly intolerable for huge amounts of Palestinians in the West Bank. I mean, to the point now, even since October 7, although it's been happening for a, a long time, at least 15 Palestinian villages have been ethnically cleansed. And what I mean by that is that these people have not been all killed, or the hundreds have been killed by Israel, but I'm saying these villages have been had no choice but to go to leave their homes, their ancestral homes, they've been there for generations because settlers and Israeli soldiers have made their lives utterly intolerable. That is the plan here, the plan being that you make life so difficult for so many people that they essentially either become refugees in their own land, these people are now basically nomads within the West Bank, or you convince them, in inverted commas, to leave. And as you rightly say, the Western media is obsessed with Netanyahu, and he's a duplicitous figure. There's no defense of him here. But the problem is not just Netanyahu. If he goes tomorrow in his political life, I can't imagine it's going to be very long now. The likely replacements, Benny Gantz, Yair Lapid, other people who are seen within Israel as supposedly more centrist or, you know, moderate. On the key issues, Jeremy, Gaza, West Bank, there's no difference. There's no difference. They believe in endless occupation. They believe in colonization. They believe in deepening settlements. There's no difference. So, you know, Gideon Levy, who's an amazing Israeli journalist and a good friend of mine, one of my personal journalistic heroes, has said for a long time he's directing this, particularly the Israeli public, those who are on the left who are utterly opposed to Netanyahu, you are making a mistake. By all means, Netanyahu is an awful figure, sure. It'd be great if he wasn't prime minister. But does anyone honestly believe he wasn't prime minister, by the way, last year, for a whole year? Do you think there was much difference? There was no difference. There wasn't the far, far, far right in the cabinet. Yes, sure. And that's obviously an awful thing. But ultimately, there's no difference on the key issues. And that, to me, is the kind of the moral collapse that has happened 
and has frankly always been there in in huge parts of the Israeli political and I guess public and as someone who's Jewish, although I'm not religious, but someone who's Jewish who has seen how that moral collapse does not has not stayed in Israel. It's permeated into vast parts of the global Jewish community to the point where since October 7, to be sure, there have been amazing, obviously non-Jewish too, but Jewish protests, groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now in the US, doing prominent high-profile protests against what's happening in Palestine. And I applaud those people. I'm friends with some of them. But the fact is the vast, vast majority of Jewish groups, including on the so-called Zionist left, have gone 110% behind Israel, behind the war, not calling for a ceasefire. That, to me, is the moral collapse of what Israel has brought to the global Jewish community. Well, you know, I, I also, uh, we, I mean, we can go back to the aftermath of 9-11 in the United States, and you saw a very similar dynamic unfold mm. in America as well, uh, where in the entirety of the United States Congress, you only had one lawmaker, uh, Representative Barbara Lee of uh, California, who voted against the blank check that Congress gave the Bush administration to wage this borderless uh, global war. Um, and so, you know, th there's there's one level on which, um, you know, we we see that this nature uh, travels from place to place. I mean, we, we certainly saw that in the United States in the aftermath of 9-11. But I, I wanted to just shift gears uh, for, for a moment and ask you about natural resources and Gaza. Um, there, there have been reports um, that the Gaza marine field, which is 20 miles off of Gaza's coast, uh, it's an uh, undeveloped uh, reservoir of, uh, there's an estimation that there's one trillion cubic feet of natural gas. And there's been discussion about, uh, you know, in Israel and the United States about exploiting this. And in late November, Joe Biden's energy security advisor, Amos Hochstein, was in Israel. And he was he was talking about a number of issues, but one of the things that he said during his visit, and this is a quote, he said, there's an opportunity here to develop the gas fields in offshore Gaza on behalf of the Palestinians. As soon as we get to the day after and this horrible war ends, there are companies willing to develop those fields. Talk, talk about the natural resource component of this and, and whether you see that as a factor in why Netanyahu uh, wants and, and others in Israel want to essentially seize Gaza. Is there a there there? I think there is something there, but I would say similar to me how I viewed the Iraq war in 2003, meaning that the Iraq war to me wasn't solely about oil. It was about a range of things. It was about U.S. dominance and attempt to try to knock out what they perceived would be an easy enemy. Yeah, and I, and I want to just make it clear. I, I was, I'm not implying that is like the, no, the nefarious that, thing sure. that it really is driving Absolutely. the whole thing. I, I just, I'm very interested because you've studied this, uh, you know, and you also understand the context yeah. of the politics of natural resources, how much of a factor this is and if you know anything else about it i think it's a factor but i don't really see this as a major factor and what i mean by that is there's been talk for a long time really in some ways since hamas took over gaza a number of years ago of although this gas reserve you're talking about was only discovered relatively recently but there's been long talk of almost make making like there was a so-called vision of some israeli uh, politicians a number of years ago of sort of having like a floating city offshore in the mediterranean near gaza to sort of provide some kind of singapore like development i mean kind of delusional 
ideas and any kind of potential gas reserves, and I have no doubt from what I've read that they exist there, to benefit whom? Like when that comment, as you said before, was talking about benefiting Palestinians, which Palestinians? Who's going to control Gaza after this is over? Who, who is this? Is it the Palestinian Authority who the US and Biden says is their desired option here, which is a deeply corrupt, unpopular body running the West Bank? Is it someone else? Is it bringing in some discredited Palestinians from overseas? Is it kind of a um, Ahmed Chalabi type situation that they bring in some Palestinian who hasn't been to Gaza for years? I only, I suppose I often get this, not often get this, some people have asked me about how important, I, you know, the, the gas fields are. I think that there is a American and Israeli desire to think of how, particularly the American under Biden, a way to potentially fund any kind of redevelopment when that happens. Because let's be clear, the Arab states have said, so far at least, very clearly, most Arab states, many, they have no interest in massively helping to rebuild Gaza. Who's going to do it? You think the Israelis are going to do it? They won't do it. Now, the northern part of Gaza is apocalyptic. It's flattened. The southern part of Gaza is well on its way. So yes, on paper, it would be, I guess, possible to exploit some of those kind of resources off the shore of Gaza. But I am deeply, deeply skeptical of that being anything viable anytime soon knowing the politics of the situation and also just finally what was remarkable living there for years was how little for a self-described western state climate change was even talked about in israel it's kind of remarkable yes there are people of course who are interested in climate in the climate crisis i'm not saying no one cares they do particularly in palestine and parts of israel where the temperatures are soaring nine months of the year but in general it's remarkable how in the Israeli government there's barely any interest in planning for what that looks like, a country that is you know, scorching hot nine months of the year, unlike, and I'm not defending what's happening in the US or parts of Europe in the transition from fossil fuels to renewables, but in Israel that conversation's barely begun. It's barely begun. And that's, that always struck me as remarkable for a country that is so centred where it is in a place where water is so scarce and yet the conversation turns too quickly to potentially exploiting gas off the coast of Gaza. Anthony, as you mentioned earlier, you lived in uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, you've reported extensively. You lived uh, there. You've reported extensively uh, from the occupied West Bank. And what we've seen uh, since October 7th, and really since Israel started to intensify its attacks against Gaza, is a second uh, front also intensifying where you have Israeli, not only Israeli military forces, but you have uh, essentially Israeli-funded terror squads uh, known as Israeli settlers um, that are, with the full support of the state, the full arming by the state, um, terrorizing and expelling Palestinian civilians from their homes. You have the Israeli military laying siege to Jenin. You have had drone strikes uh, that have started to uh, ratchet up in the West Bank. You have thousands of people who have been uh, arrested. You have people being arrested for things that they put on their status on WhatsApp. You have uh, children uh, and other people under the age of 18, as the Guardian newspaper called them, uh, being rounded up and stuck into the military uh, gulag system, the military justice system. Talk about that 
other part of the war where uh, Israel now has sort of uh, uh, taken off uh, all the gloves and uh, all the leashes, and and it's a full siege now in the occupied West Bank. This really goes to the heart, I think, of what Israel has become. And it goes back to what I was saying before, that for so many years, many in the West have chosen to frame what's happening in the West Bank and the extremism within it as a few bad apples. Yes, there are some extremist settlers. Yes, they do terrible things. Yes, they attack Palestinians. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that awful? But really, overall, Israel and the Palestinians are kind of doing their best to manage the situation. Whereas what has happened, and this is undeniably, as you say, accelerated since October 7, is what was once a relatively small fringe extremist bunch of Jewish fanatics, talking about from the late 1960s, has metastasized into a full-blown incurable cancer within the Israeli and Palestinian space. And what I mean by that is you now have roughly 750,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, all there illegally. Now, they're not all fascists, but a sizable proportion are. I mean, they're all there illegally, but they're not all violent. And a sizable proportion are not just extremists, but their vision is essentially the Taliban. Their vision is Iran, obviously Jewish, not uh, Muslim, a theocratic Jewish state. And I think there is still a profound reluctance in the West, the US and elsewhere, to come to terms with that. This doesn't mean every Israeli Jew is a theocrat. In fact, there's obviously a sizable amount of Jews in Israel who fundamentally oppose that. Of course, that's true. But those groups, those political parties, those interests have essentially won for now and they control the state. And I'm not just talking about this year under Netanyahu's current government. I'm talking about for years. Now, yes, this year with the far-right government and since October 7, there has been a massive acceleration of, as you say, violence against Palestinians, settlers coming to Palestinian villages and threatening them with death unless they leave within 24 hours, mass destruction of olive groves that Palestinians rely on. And I've spent time often in these areas for really close to 20 years, both with uh, Palestinians, but also I've spent quite a lot of time with um, fanatical Jewish settlers um, as a journalist rather than as a friend, just to be clear. And there is, I think, a real, I mean, it's, I, I can only put it down to profound denial. It's almost a sense that so much of the West can accept that there are Christian fundamentalists. There's obviously Muslim fundamentalists. There's Hindu fundamentalists. There is still a real reluctance, I would argue, since the Holocaust to come to terms with the fact that there is a sizable proportion of the Israeli public who are utterly fanatical, who are theocrats, who are, their aim is to ethnically cleanse Palestinians, either kill them or forcibly remove them. And you have an entire global network of many in the evangelical community in the US particularly, but also the global Jewish diaspora that support this. And I don't think enough of the West has come to terms with that. This is what is being created. And I would argue it's irreversible. I'm not saying the situation there can never change. I think it can. But on the current trajectory, the aim, and it's accelerated since October 7, to be sure, is to make life for Palestinians 
utterly impossible to make them refugees in their own territory, to convince them to try to emigrate if they can get a passport for somewhere else, God knows where. This is the vision. A, a, I mean, even this year, before October 7, some listeners will remember, there were Jewish-led pogroms against Palestinians in various West Bank villages, people killed, villages being burnt down. I mean, this is what is going on on a daily basis. And I note in the last few weeks, the US and parts of the EU are now talking about and the US is doing that, blocking visas for extremist settlers to, say, come to the US. Now, okay, great. But firstly, I don't think an extremist settler in, in Hebron is going to be too concerned that he or she can't have fun in Manhattan. That's not the solution here. The solution is it's being funded. Uh, unless, unless they're originally- they're from America. Well, yeah, I mean, the question also is, uh, totally. uh, what are they going to do about the sizable number of American citizens that have gone and stolen Palestinian homes? Into, and it's also worth saying this finally, that the American government still allows tax-deductible donations in America to support violent settlers in Palestine. It is insane. And there's been lots of attempts to try to reverse that, but the US government won't listen. Anthony, in the in the time we have remaining, I wanna uh, I wanna also get into this issue uh, that is is happening uh, across Europe. It's now happening in the United States. I'm sure there are equivalents in Australia as well. Um, but in in the United States, uh, recently lawmakers passed a re resolution stating that anti-Zionism equates uh, to uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, you have Joe Biden, who throughout his political career, even though Biden is a Catholic, he says, you, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, and I'm a Zionist. Um, at the White House Hanukkah celebration uh, this week, Joe Biden said that if there wasn't a state of Israel, uh, that no Jew in the world would be safe. Um, talk about this uh, weaponization of uh, anti-Semitism and the the deployment of uh, allegations of anti-Semitism against people, including Jews, probably you get this, this hate mail also, who are criticizing the tactics of the Israeli state or are offering a political critique of Zionism. In a real anti-Semitism, actual hatred of Jews attacking synagogues, attacking people who wear religious garb or, or, or vile comments online is real. I mean, it's obvious to say that, but and it's real and it's growing in parts of the world. There's no doubt about that, and it worries me and many other people. What is happening at the moment, before October 7, and it's been turbocharged since, as you say, is not just a weaponization of anti-Semitism in an attempt to try to stop or criticise or silence critics of Israel, but it's an attempt in a way to provide eternal insurance and protection for anything Israel does. The idea that members of the US Congress who voted for that resolution that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, many of whom, by the way, who openly associate with actual anti-Semites, far-right white nationalists, I mean, that sort of detail seems to have been often ignored, is grotesque. And also, to be clear, <laughs> As someone Jewish myself, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism has been a long tradition in Judaism that people, growing numbers of young Jews, importantly in the US, Jews, are saying, we do not support our identity being hijacked by a fundamentalist Israeli state, long before October 7, and certainly very much since. And that has become a generational split, I might add, in much of the Jewish community. What I see happening in Europe, and I'm an Australian citizen, but I'm also a German citizen. 
And what's happening particularly in Germany and other states too, but certainly Germany, is a real perversion and misunderstanding of their own history. Most of my family were killed in the Holocaust and the ones that got out escaped to wherever they could get a visa in 1939, US, UK, Australia, etc. But And how Germany, when I say Germany, the German elites, many in the German art world, many in the German media, many in the German uh, intelligence services are not just ignoring the lessons of history, but somehow by criminalising any display of support for Palestine. In the last years, I have a number of friends in Germany who are protesting peacefully for Palestinian rights, wearing a kefir, the Palestinian scarf, supporting BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, marching in the streets peacefully, violently abused and assaulted by police, simply for the act of supporting Palestine. And, Anthony, just to add another layer to to what you're accurately describing here, um, there have been hundreds of arrests of people for speech and assembly-related offenses. And in Germany, there's also discussion of passing a law that would make as a requirement to be a naturalized citizen of Germany a signed statement recognizing uh, the right of the state of Israel to exist. Uh, there's also a criminalization. You're not allowed to uh, to use terms that apply to the Third Reich's uh, uh, pogrom and mass murder of Jews uh, in the 30s and 40s. You are not allowed to use those terms to describe the actions of the Israeli state. And there are all, I've, t- I've been talking with lawyers who are representing people who've been arrested on these speech-related charges, and it's chilling to see this spreading. This has happened for a long time in Germany. This has been on the books, but it, it, it's now spreading to the United States and elsewhere, this notion that Israel should have a carved off special place in the law where criticizing them with words, criticizing their actions, criticizing actions that even leading Holocaust scholars have said may constitute genocide, that that somehow is going to be criminalized, but only in the case of Israel. This, this is devastatingly dangerous so dangerous and it really shows that germany when i again when i say germany many in the german elites and other parts of german society are trying to absolve their historical guilt for what happened in the 30s and 40s by manifesting itself in uncritical support for indefinite israeli occupation and colonization as if somehow that will cleanse their spirits will cleanse their guilt that somehow by criminalizing Palestinians, by Palestinian expressions of self-determination, whatever it may be, this is just, it's just an abomination of history, but also it fundamentally misunderstands the trajectory of where a lot of Europe is currently going. You had an election, what, a month ago in the Netherlands where a far-right political entity won. In the German political space, the far-right AFD party has a decent, very decent chance they're already in the parliament there, could well do far better in the next election. Various parts of Europe are moving to the far-right. And the idea that the focus is on criminalising or silencing criticism of Israel when many of these groups that are surging in political support have a history of being neo-Nazis, of associating with Holocaust denial. Like this is the danger that somehow we are, when I say we, the, the people who are pushing these kinds of arguments are willfully ignoring the lessons of history. You know, what I see happening in the US, even the last few weeks of these 
fairly hapless heads of American universities who go in front of Congress and some far-right Trump-loving Republican challenges them on their definition of what is anti-Semitism and one of them's resigned. The idea somehow that there is a profound environment in American universities against Jews is fanciful. I'm not denying, to be clear, that there's not anti-Semitism in some American campuses. Of course there is, undeniably. I'm not denying that for a second. But the idea somehow that it's unsafe for Jews to exist in a space, if they hear the word Palestine, if they hear the word apartheid in Palestine, somehow is anti-Semitic, is so absurd and frankly is backfiring because real anti-Semitism, violence against Jews, discrimination against Jews because of their Jewish, is rising. That's where the fight needs to be. And of course, let's, let's face it, all these culture wars that are being pushed by elements in the GOP in America and elsewhere is an attempt to try to ignore the fact that it's pretty damn hard to sugarcoat what Israel's doing in Gaza. The photos and videos don't lie. We know what's going on, the devastation, the utter indiscriminate nature of what Israel's doing. But let's ignore that. Let's focus on the fact that some hapless head of Harvard didn't say the right words in front of Congress. I mean, that is just a gross simplification and distraction. Anthony Lowenstein, I want to thank you so much for all of your work. People should check out all of your books, but in particular, The Palestine Laboratory. And um, want to thank you for not just your work, but also for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. That was Anthony Lowenstein, an independent investigative journalist and author of the new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. It's been published in a number of countries in the U.S. You can find it through Verso Press. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. This is our last episode for this year. I want to thank you so much for joining us all throughout this year. And we're going to be back in 2024 with all new episodes. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is our lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our legal review is done by David Brelo and Elizabeth Sanchez. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. That helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, you can always drop us an email at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next year, I'm Jeremy Scahill.